Alright, I mean, sounds a bit funny, but uh, when, when um, Chris was asking me what, uh, what, what I was going to speak on, I, I was preparing some talks for a minister's conference at the time, and I thought I'd preach on Jude, and that's why I decided there and then I'd do Jude here as well. Uh, but when you're preaching to ministers, it's very hard-hitting, so I've been trying to tone down some of the uh, things I've been saying from Jude, because it's not fair on you. Uh, ministers, uh, they can take it, or they should be able to take it. Uh, but it's a pretty, um, it's a heavy book in, in lots of ways. It's got some very uh, frightening things to say to us. And, and this section that we're going to look at now is a little bit scary in some ways. Um, I'm going to, there are bits in, in Jude that I don't really understand, so I'm skipping over those bits. Uh, the, the bits from, from verse 8 onwards, the, the couple of verses after verse 8, I'm not really very sure how to handle those verses. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 11. <laughs> um, it's been said that uh, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss personalities. Well, if that's so, then Jude uh, must be a very small-minded man because he names names here, doesn't he, in this letter. In verse 11, he picks out three personalities from the Old Testament and uh, he parades them before us. Uh, why does he do that? Why does he name names? Is he just being small-minded? Is he incapable of discussing the principles? without resorting to personalities? Uh, is this just tabloid journalism? Well, I think this is something that we find quite often in the scriptures. The Bible does, a, does this, this a lot. Rather than discuss uh, a principle in the abstract, it very often turns the principle into a personality and clothes it in flesh and blood and makes it walk in front of us so that we can see clearly what this is all about and that's what Jude is doing here rather than discuss this whole matter of apostasy uh, in a kind of theoretical abstract way he gives us three concrete examples here in verse 11 from the Old Testament so first of all he names names and then as we'll see you've probably got an outline in front of you uh, then we'll see that he actually paints pictures and uh, there are about five pictures that he paints for us to illustrate his point and then he quotes prophecy and there are two prophecies that he particularly uh, refers to so th those are, that's where we're going he names names, he paints pictures, he quotes prophecies first of all then let's name some names look at verse 11 he brings together these three personalities from the Old Testament and you may well ask, well, why these three in particular? Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, most of us, I suppose, have heard of Cain. Probably not so many have heard of Balaam. And very few people have heard of Korah. But they're all there in the Old Testament. And the thing about them, they're all religious characters. They all occupied prominent positions in the religious establishment of their day. Cain was a man uh, who recognized God and worshipped God and brought an offering to God. Balaam was a prophet, a preacher. 
a preacher with a reputation in fact the king of Moab said of Balaam uh, that whom he blesses is blessed and whom he curses is cursed that's not a bad testimonial coming from a pagan king and it seems to have been true there was a real power about Balaam's preaching and Korah well he was in the inner circle he belonged to the most religious of all the twelve tribes he was a cousin to Moses uh, he ministered at the tabernacle he stood at the very centre of the religious life of the nation so all three of these characters in verse 11 Cain, Balaam and Korah believed in God worshipped God and served God and yet a thousand years later Jude brings them together as concrete examples of apostasy and he warns us don't go the way of Cain don't run into the mistake that Balaam made don't fall as Korah did don't crash like him so let's, let's just quickly look at these names first of all he says don't go the way of Cain now we all know who Cain was he was the very first murderer he murdered his brother Abel why did he do that? Uh, well the answer is quite clear in the scriptures it's because he was jealous uh, we're told in Genesis chapter, back in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5 that the Lord looked with favour on Abel's offering but on Cain and his offering he didn't look with favour and so Cain was very angry and his face downcast now we could, uh, we could discuss the different offerings that each brother brought and uh, why one was accepted and the other was not accepted and we could spend a lot of time talking about that and there have been many sermons preached about that but we would miss the point the point simply here is this the reason Cain murdered his brother Abel was because he was jealous that's why it was spiritual jealousy and that kind of thing can, can really eat you up see often we, we, when we think of sin we think of the, the big scandalous things the things that get into the newspapers but it's the little foxes that spoil the vine isn't it? remember that picture from the Song of Solomon it talks about the little rodents little, they're not foxes really they're more like rat-like creatures that sort of creep in under the, the fences and, and nibble away at the crops and it's the little foxes it's the, the sins of the not the, the big scandalous Sunday newspaper sins of the flesh but it's the sins of the spirit that can destroy a work of God can destroy a ministry spiritual jealousy F.B. Mayer uh, was a minister in London at the same time as Charles Haddon Spurgeon and um, Campbell Morgan uh, they all ministered within a stone's throw of each other can you imagine that uh, if you know anything about these guys they were, they were giants uh, and uh, F.B. Meyer uh, tells of his struggle with jealousy when uh, Campbell Morgan returned to England after being in America he said to some of his friends it was easy to pray for the success of Morgan when he was in America but when he came to England and to a church down the road from me it was something different the old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy but I got my heel upon his head and whether I felt right towards my friend I determined to act right so what he did was to what he did he put on a welcome tea for Campbell Morgan 
and uh, every time he could he would go along to Westminster Chapel to listen to sit under the ministry of Campbell Morgan and just down the road was Charles Haddon Spurgeon coming to the end of his ministry all within walking distance of each other see when God came looking for Cain to ask him where is your brother do you remember famous answer he said am I my brother's keeper that's what jealousy does that's the way of Cain it's it makes you indifferent towards your fellow Christians it makes you indifferent to the well-being of other believers am I my brother's keeper don't go the way of Cain don't murder your brother see there's more than one way to kill a brother isn't there you can kill his reputation by gossip by innuendo you can kill a sister's spirit by a lack of encouragement don't go the way of Cain and don't rush into the error of Balaam he says don't make the same mistake as ba now Balaam was a brilliant young man he had a tremendous reputation what he blessed was blessed what he cursed was cursed God's hand was, was evidently upon him and God's word was in his mouth and yet scripture tells us in, and I've just been preaching through these chapters in Numbers, Numbers chapter 31 that he caused Israel to sin and as a result of, of, of Balaam 24,000 people perished so if Cain was a murderer Balaam was a mass murderer wasn't he and a thousand years afterwards just over the page in the book of Revelation he's still causing God's people to sin so uh, he, he's you read there in Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 we read there of people in the church at Pergamum holding to the doctrine of Balaam what is that? what is Balaam's error? how does it destroy church? how could one man do such damage to God's cause? and the answer quite simply is that he had the right message but the wrong motivation there was nothing wrong with his preaching he said the right things you read those chapters in Numbers every time he opened his mouth he spoke God's word he was sound, he was orthodox in, in lots of ways but his motivation was the problem and that's very challenging isn't it it's highlighted there in verse 11 there's just a little hint as to what his motivation actually was and if you read the chapters in Numbers you'll see it very clearly but you, you notice what it says there in verse 11 woe to them, they've taken the way of Cain they've rushed for profit I thought the church was a, a non-profit organisation well Balaam didn't think so he rushed for profit he was after money he wanted to be paid he wanted money he was greedy for gain and of course there's more than one way to be greedy you can be greedy for money in that crass sort of way and, and there are people like that around who are sort of fleecing the flock they're usually on television in early hours of the morning aren't they 
but um, there, there, there's, there are different t- types of greed. There's, there's, a, there's a greed for recognition, as I mentioned earlier. There's a, a greed for, uh, uh, for just for uh, a sense of fulfilment. You can, people sometimes go into ministry for psychological reasons, and, and Judy's warning about that. Don't walk in the way of Cain. Don't rush into, in, into the error of Balaam. And don't end up in the same place as Korah. Remember what happened to him. The ground opened up and swallowed him. Uh, we, we use that phrase, don't we? And uh, I've often been, I don't know about you, I've often been in situations where I wanted that to happen. <laughs> uh, for the ground to open up and swallow me. And uh, that, that phrase which is entered into our vocabulary, it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the, the tragedy of, of, of Korah. Where that literally is what happened. The ground opened up and swallowed him. He, he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Uh, he accused Moses and Aaron of having too much power. 250 leaders joined him. It's no small time rebellion. I tell you what I think, what I would call, Korah is what I would call a frustrated minister. I think what you have here is frustrated minister syndrome. And there's, there are often people like this in the churches. And it's a serious thing. It's, it's really pride. It manifests itself in so many different ways. People have a falling out in their fellowship and so what do they do? They go and they set up church on their own somewhere else. People thrust themselves into ministry even though they've not been called and their gifts have not been recognised. I was told that I, I can't remember the f- exact figures now, but I think somebody said that there were 30 new congregations spring up in Tasmania every year and 30 congregations go out of existence in Tasmania every year. These are people playing church. These are frustrated ministers gathering congregations. setting up church for themselves, thrusting themselves into the ministry. Uh, you, you see it in the cult of personality where people... You know, set up their own ministry and then get a following on the internet. And don't make that mistake, Judy is saying. Don't, don't go the way of Cain. Don't run into the error of Balaam. And don't make the mistake of, of, of Korah. I think this may sound as if it's sort of all very... Um, very long way ago and a very long time ago but it's really a very relevant warning for us I think uh, some very high profile uh, evangelical leaders have recently sort of come out and, and spoken about this in their own lives uh, you may remember C.J. Mahaney uh, recently who uh, has a, a huge ministry in the States uh, he announced that he was taking leave of absence from his ministry uh, he, this is what he said uh, that he, he'd stepped down from the, leader, the leadership position of Sovereign Grace Ministries after facing charges, not of immorality or financial impropriety, but, that, but of certain character flaws, such as pride, un, unimputability, deceit, sinful judgment and hypocrisy. This is what he says. These charges from former pastors and leaders in Sovereign Grace are serious. And they've been very grieving to read. 
I believe I have by the grace of God perceived a degree of my sin and I've been grieved by my sin and its effects on others and so he stepped down his decision came a year after John Piper did something very similar John Piper the, 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 the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church and the, the uh, leader of Desiring God Ministries uh, he took similar leave of absence over several species of pride that he saw in himself this is what he said, he apologised to his uh, congregation not for any specific deeds but for what he called the sins of my soul ongoing character flaws and the stress that they have caused to others he identified several species of pride these are not the gross scandalous sins of the flesh these are the sins of the spirit and uh, he took a break uh, from ministry uh, for uh, a period of time not that there was any hint of any kind of scandal but he was conscious that these things were, were eating away and destroying his ministry he took a break from ministry he says to work on his marriage not that there was any hint of unfaithfulness in his marriage but this is what he said he said our marriage is rock solid we are rock solid in our commitment to each other but the term rock solid is not always an emotionally satisfying metaphor the precious garden of my home needs tending he told his congregation I, I'm reminded of uh, hearing uh, Festo Kivingeri speak once and uh, he's a great uh, leader in the Ugandan church and uh, he was telling a story against himself he'd been booked to speak at a convention and uh, he was going out to preach and as he was leaving home he had a blazing row with his wife uh, but he was booked to speak at this convention he had to catch the transport to get to the convention and to preach and as he was going out of the door he said I felt that the Holy Spirit was saying to me you go and preach I'll stay with your wife you see it's not about public it's not about performance it's not about externals do you see what, what Jude is talking about here it's not about the big scandalous things it's about the, the little foxes that creep in and spoil the vine so he gives us this warning here in these three characters he parades these three personalities before us and then he paints five pictures for us very vivid pictures and uh, I want to just flick through them in rapid succession I don't want to spend too much time with any of them let's think of them if you like as windows see he's, what he's describing is something that was happening back there certain men had crept in to the church uh, they were kind of fifth columnists and uh, there was a, a threat to the gospel to the faith that was once and all, for all delivered to the saints from these men who had crept in unawares and, and so what he's doing here is opening windows if you like for us to look into what was into, into the scene as, as it were but the thing is you know what it's like when you look through a window you can look through a window but sometimes when you look through a window you just catch a glimpse of yourself don't you, your own reflection and I suppose that's the right way for us to look through these windows it'll give us an idea of what was happening in the church but I think we'll see just a glimpse of ourselves as we look through these windows let's just quickly look at them uh, he says these men are like 
Well, I'll just list them first of all. Hidden wreaths. I don't know if that's what it says in your translation. Blemishes on our love feasts. Hidden wreaths, uh, one translation puts it. Um, empty clouds, fruitless trees, raging seas, wandering stars. Let, let's see if we can recognize ourselves in any of those pictures. Hidden wreaths or, or blemishes. In the NIV it says blemishes, but uh, the literal meaning is it's look, when you look down at the sea from, from a cliff and uh, you can see a dark shadow in the water. When you're down there at ground level or at sea level you don't see it, but from, a, from up high you can see that there are, there are rocks beneath the, the, the waves. There's, there's, a, there's a shadow in the water which can rip the hull out of an ocean-going liner as we saw just a couple of months ago off the coast of Italy. And uh, in other words, what he's describing here is, is an unseen danger. It's a disaster waiting to happen. And they're right there, says Jude, at the heart of church life. At, at, they're, they're there at your love feasts. In the agape meal. Tertullian in the 4th century uh, describes one of these agape meals. Our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape, that is, love. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain, since with the good things of the feast we benefit the needy. The participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God, as much as eaten as, is eaten as satisfies the cravings of hunger, as much is drunk as befits the chaste. After manual ablutions and the bringing in of lights, each is asked to stand forth and sing, as he can, a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. As the feast commenced with prayers, so with prayer it is closed. That's a love feast. Uh, it's often been said, I think, that um, uh, one of the differences between the church then and the church now is this, that they made a meal of it and we made a meeting out of it. Isn't that right? We're so formal, aren't we, in our meetings. We have our meetings and our set times of, of worship and so on. They were, they were a community. They met around the table. They ate and drank together in each other's homes. And, uh, and what Jude is describing here is, is that kind of close fellowship. Remember how in the Acts of the Apostles we're told that they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. They broke bread in, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. But in that beautiful picture of fellowship, there, are, there is an unseen danger. Maybe Jude's thinking of his namesake. You know, at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, do you remember, the one who is going to betray me, the hand of the one who is going to betray me, is at this table. And when Jesus said that, they began to question themselves. They didn't all turn around and stare at Judas. They began to question themselves. Lord, they said, is it I? Am I the one? See, that's what we need to do. That's, why, that's how we should read these verses in Jude. That's, the, that's what Jude wants us to do. Is it I? Am I an unseen danger in the, in, in the heart of the church? That's why, you know, at the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul says, as often as you do this, you should examine yourselves. 
and he warns about eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves why? because we don't discern the body what does he mean by that? he's not talking about the bread and the wine on the table he's talking about the people sitting around the table he's talking about the body of Christ and they were coming together in their little cliques and in their little, little friendship groups and they weren't talking to one another and they weren't even passing the time of day to each other they were all looking after themselves and then Paul says that is, a, that is, that is so bad that it will bring judgment from God upon us how dare you come together like that? And, and this is what he's talking about here. He's talking about self-serving shepherds who are blemishes in your love feasts, serving themselves, not discerning the Lord's body, not recognizing one another as those for whom Christ died. Hidden blemishes, clouds without rain, blown by the wind, picture that, can't you, in your mind's eyes. Clouds scudding across the sky. And you see a cloud, and if you come from where I come from, you get your coat out and your umbrella. But in Australia, you don't necessarily, do you? Because we know only too well in this part of the world that uh, you, can get, you can see a cloud in the sky, and you can say it's going to rain, but it doesn't. It just blows through the sky. And particularly in this uh, part of the world where Jude is writing, they, they, they knew all about that. They knew all about drought and famine. They lived in places where it hadn't rained in years. And what Jude is describing here is, this, is, is the disappointment, you see, of seeing a cloud in the sky and you think it's going to rain, but it doesn't. And he says, don't be like that. Don't be that kind of a Christian. Proverbs says, like billowing clouds that bring no rain is the person who talks big but never produces. Don't be that sort of a person. We're very good at that, aren't we? We're full of big intentions. We make our vows. Now here's a, uh, here's a church. It's just inducted its new minister. It's a church that's uh, been in drought. They're looking forward now to the, the arrival of their new pastor. They're eagerly anticipating times of refreshing after years of barrenness. And the induction service is such an encouragement. And the minister makes his vows and three years later he's gone off somewhere else. And the church is just as barren as it was before he came. But we make our marriage vows, don't we? We promise to love our wives as Christ loved the church. To cherish them, to nurture them. We talk big. We bring our children, whether we do it through baptism or through dedication, we bring our children to the Lord in the, in, the, in the context of the congregation and we say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do we? Are we just billowing clouds that bring no rain? Full of good intentions, but never producing anything. Hidden wreaths, empty clouds, Trees without fruit, doubly dead. Why are they fruitless? Well, look at verse 19. Look what it says there about these uh, fifth columnists. These are the men, uh, Jude says, who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. That's the, that's the difference, you see, between these men and, and, and these false teachers and a real Christian. They do not have the spirit. They have the foliage. They have the externals. 
But there's no sap in the branches. There's no inner life in these men. There's no secret relationship with the Lord. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. I remember reading a, um, the, the account of a, a, a young man who was being interviewed for missionary service. And uh, he was sent along to a, an old minister, um, one of the senior members of the board. And uh, he was asked to, to turn up at the manse uh, at four o'clock in the morning. This was, uh, I think, a century or two ago. Um, he turned up at uh, four o'clock in the morning. He got up at 2.30 and walked a few miles to the manse. Uh, and when he got there, he discovered that uh, his examiner was already up and waiting for him. He, he was ushered into the study. It was a bitterly cold morning. A whole hour passed and there was no sign of the minister returning. Another hour passed and then another. It was eight o'clock when the old man finally came back into the room and when he came, he offered no explanation. He gave no apology. He proceeded with the examination. How well are you versed in English grammar, he said. Fairly well, said the missionary candidate. Well, spell this word then. Baker. B-A-K-E-R said the young man. Excellent, said the old minister. I see you've got a good grasp on English grammar. What's, what about your maths? I'd, he said, I've done a little maths. Well, tell me this then. How much is two and two? Four, said the young man. Excellent. It'll be my pleasure to recommend to the board that you be accepted. You've passed your examination of flying colours. Good morning, and God be with you. The young man went home, thoroughly convinced by now that his examiner was senile. But the following week at the board, the old minister was asked to give his report. And this is what he said. The young man passed successfully in every test I gave him. He passed the test of endurance. I asked him to present himself at my home at four o'clock in the morning and he was there. The test of punctuality, he was there at four, not five minutes after four. The test of long-suffering. I kept him waiting in the cold for four hours, but he didn't complain or protest. The test of humility. I asked him two elementary questions that were meant to insult his intelligence, but he never objected. The test of self-control. Throughout the whole time he was never once ruffled, never once annoyed, and never once lost his temper. He maintained his poise and affability throughout. It's my opinion that he is of the right material to make a great missionary. I have pleasure in proposing that he be accepted. By their fruits you shall know them. Hidden reeves, cloud, uh, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, raging seas. Verse 13 there. I, was, uh, I lived for five years right on the Irish Sea when I was training for ministry. And uh, it was quite a, an awesome thing. For the, uh, during the winter, the, all the, the halls of residence along the front were, were boarded up because the, the sea was so, so rough that it would churn up all sorts of it would throw up rocks and, and windows would be smashed and so uh, and, and there's something you remember what Isaiah says he talks about the, the wicked being like the tossing sea which cannot rest whose waves cast up mire and mud there's no peace says my God for the wicked and, and, and what Jude is saying is this don't be like that don't be that sort of a Christian 
Don't be that sort of a Christian leader. There are people like that, aren't there? There are ministries like that, which leave nothing but a trail of devastation behind them. Awesome, <laughs> impressive, but destructive. Raging seas, hidden reefs, empty clouds, fruitless trees, raging seas, wandering stars. You see, back then people used the stars as their GPS system to navigate. Not in an astrological sense, but in terms of astronomy. That's how they got their bearings. That's how they knew what direction to head in, by, by looking at the stars. But every now and again, a star would appear in the sky which they hadn't seen before, a shooting star, which would throw them off course before burning itself out and uh, disappearing into the night sky forever. And Judas saying, don't be that sort of Christian either. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Instead, shall I tell you what kind of a Christian you should be? Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Shining like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. People should be able to, to come to you, to listen to your counsel, to look at your life and be guided in the right paths. Judas say. Now, this is all illustration, of course, and as Spurgeon says in his uh, uh, lectures to his students, a house must have windows, but if it's all windows, it's going to collapse. Uh, Jude has paraded three personalities in front of us, and he's, uh, he's given us these five windows to look through. Five pictures of what was happening in the church then and now. But as I said just before, we, we, uh, if a window, we, you look through a window and you can't really do that without catching sight of yourself. And maybe you've caught sight of yourself in those pictures, in those windows. So let me bring you to the last thing. He names names. This isn't some theoretical thing. This can happen to real people. He names names. He paints pictures. And then he quotes prophecy. Now this is interesting. I'm just going to really look at one of them. In verse 14, look what he says. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Enoch is the man, you remember, who is famous for godliness in the Old Testament. Remember what we're told in Genesis chapter 5, and verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not. He was, he was what's the word, translated? Is that the right word? Uh, so, as, as one of the old com uh, what preachers says, it was as if you know, he and God went out for a walk one day and then God sort of said to him, look, Enoch, we've come so far, you may as well come home with me. And no doubt they sent out search parties to look for him, but they couldn't find him because he was no longer on this earth. What happened to him, who knows? It was a mysterious thing but the point about Enoch is this he walked with God that's the point you see and, and, uh, and Jude refers to that man Enoch and he, he talks about an apocryphal prophecy because this isn't in our Bible what he's quoting here uh, he talks about Enoch's prophecy about judgment there he says see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him Enoch prophesied that he says now why does he why does he quote an apocryphal prophecy of Enoch 
And he could have quoted Jesus, because Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? His own brother. Jesus spoke about coming in judgment with all his holy angels, didn't he? Jesus warned us that every idle word whispered in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. You, you can read that in the Gospels. So why does Jude go all the way back to the seventh from Adam, to Enoch, and quote Enoch, and quote a prophecy that we don't even have in our Bibles? Why does he do that? Why does he go all the way back to the beginning of time, to the seventh from Adam, to the father of Methuselah? That's who Enoch was, by the way. The father of Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived. He lived for nearly a thousand years. And do you know what the word Methuselah means? By the way, the name Methuselah means that when he dies, it will come. What came when Methuselah died? It was the flood. God kept him alive for a thousand years before the flood came. What does that tell you about God? You see, what the point I'm trying to build here, what I want you to see is this. The reason, I think, that Jude goes all the way back to the beginning of time to this ancient antediluvian prophecy of, of, of Enoch, the father of Methuselah, the seventh from Adam, because he wants us to understand that for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God has been patiently waiting, warning us that judgment is coming. He is not swift to judgment. He is slow to judgment and swift to show mercy the Old Testament says judgment is his strange work you know what that means don't you it's like you know if you're right handed and you try and do something with your left hand <laughs> it doesn't come naturally to you to do that judgment is not God it, it's a, it is strange work God doesn't delight in judgment he's slow to judge I read this um, account, quite interesting account of a guy called H.W. Uh, Brown who um, tells this story about uh, a colleague of his in ministry, a man by the name of James Stewart. They met many years ago at a railway station. First time he met James Stewart at this railway station, um, he uh, found him just standing there and he, apparently his son had left home. And uh, he, he, every day James Stewart would go to the railway station to wait for his son to come back. Apparently 13 years later Brown returned to the same town and there on the platform at the railway station was James Stewart still waiting for his son to come home. Apparently one day he did. <laughs> and he, he ran to greet him and he said uh, to his son, my son I would have stayed here till I died waiting for you to return. Well, maybe you've just caught a glimpse of yourself through the windows this afternoon. Maybe you've been, even been frightened a little bit by this warning of Jews, especially if you're in ministry. It's very scary if you're a minister of the gospel. But look, he's not just waiting. It's not just that he would have died. He would have waited and stayed until he died. He actually did die because of your sin. And he waits to be gracious to you. He warns. He warns that there is a judgment coming. But he waits to be gracious. He waits and waits and waits for us to return 
to him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that indeed you would uh, help us to do just that. Thank you that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and we may go in. We thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Jesus we can uh, know forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, that that burden that we carry of guilt, that that can be thrown away at the cross, that it can be lifted from our shoulders. We pray, Lord, that we would be real Christians, not counterfeit Christians, living stones, not hidden reeds, trees of righteousness planted by the Lord, not barren fig trees. We pray, Lord, that we might not be waterless clouds, but rivers of living water. We pray that we might not be wandering stars leading people astray, but shining like stars holding out the word of life. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would make us the people that you want us to be in our day and generation. For his sake. Amen.